Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. I'm doing well, and hopefully you are as well. I have been, let's see, on the road. I did some timber marking. Then I worked with another client that I have, and then I did some consulting. Just a lot going on for me this time of year. A lot of people are getting prepared for hunting season, which really means that, you know, I'm, I'm in the boat of just consulting, helping people, you know, get prepared past clients. And then I can sell all the way up into October. And then I start again in December. I've got my, I've got my vacation, which essentially I don't like to do much during vacation. I hunt a little bit, but uh, <laughs> that's kind of my, my schedule. We've been talking a little bit uh, about a bunch of different topics, Recently, we did a waterfall, and we've talked about, you know, mineral balancing. Today, I want to get Perry Batten back on and just see what's going on, you know, on the farms he's working with. We, we haven't checked in with him in a while, and I, I've wanted to kind of do a follow-up with him, see what he's got going on. We don't, we don't have an agenda today. We're just going to chat, see what's up, and uh, maybe can give you some opportunities to think about what you can do on your landscape this time of year we're uh we're at the you know the start of summer it's going to peak get really warm you know and uh there'll be some things probably that that he'll uh, explain to us today perry how you doing good man how are you i am good i am relaxing home i've been sitting here i've been (laughs) i didn't i didn't work today i well, I worked on my, my son's four-wheeler. I, I didn't go anywhere. I talked on the phone today. <laughs> I relaxed. And I um, my, my son's four-wheeler, I can't get these darn brakes fixed. I've been just struggling getting this, getting the pressure and the brakes correct. And just, oh, bleeding the brakes. It's just painful. So equipment woes today. And uh, they're personal equipment woes. So, you know, I don't know how those, those things go. Oh, yeah. Anytime... Uh... Anytime you're out in the outdoors, whether you're farming, food plot, no matter what you're doing, there's always something equipment related. I, I got plenty of stories about that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm just tired of things breaking. And it was funny. I uh, I walked into buying that uh, ATV and I said, all right, you know, I know this is a project, but, you know, like everything else, like I don't really have the time. So, you know, today I'm, I'm recovering basically from a bunch of client trips and I'm just kind of resting around the house. And I was like, oh, I, I got to do something, right? I, 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 you know, it's raining out. I got to do something. So that was, that was on my docket and I'm not done. So I, I'm going to finish, try to finish it tonight. Let, let's go back. We, we've been, uh, it's been a little bit since you've been on and um, I've kind of wondered what's been going on the past month or so, you know, on the jury farms, what have you been working on specifically? 
Yeah, so Wade and myself handle all of our row crop food plots, if you will. We plant a lot of cordon beans, mainly for late season hunting, because it's a really, really good strategy for us come that time of year. You know, you grab a muzzleloader, or we're even sometimes got bows in our hands shooting deer late into January. If we got a big deer that might have left during the rut, and he shows back up on those corn bean fields late. But we we planted, I think we had 137 acres of row crop uh, this year. And those are kind of scattered out between, you know, four acres on this farm, five acres on this farm, our biggest fields, uh, I think it's 12 acres. So we do all that. And, uh, now we're sitting in a, in a drought, a a very big drought. So it's kind of a scary time right now. All our crops are good. Everything sprayed well, you know, we got a good kill on weeds, but, but, uh, you can only do so much and mother nature's not doing her part. So. Mm-hmm. that's kind of where we are yeah let's let's talk a little bit about drought and two two things i want to say about drought you know we've talked previously i think you've you've kind of talked about you know pivot systems uh, i've talked about sprinkler systems recently i've been talking about you know explaining to folks you know how to drought proof your property i'm doing some thing, things on my property you know one of the biggest things you can do is cover crops the second biggest thing you can do is once you're you know building those those the, the soil pads the organic material really is kind of the means to helping sustain more water. It's like a water retention system, almost like a sponge. And I think a lot of people forget about that. I know in these row crop systems, a lot of times we're doing tillage, et cetera. But one thing you can do is just focus on building soil. And not that that won't fix the drought situation necessarily, right? But it'll give you a chance where you might have a little longevity or legs. And it'll give you a chance to have more water retention within the soil. And one of the rules of thumb I have is you stick your index finger in the ground. And at the point where it meets your, your knuckle, if you don't have a feeling of moisture at the tip of your finger, you're in trouble. One, you got to be able to get your finger in the ground. And if you can, that's, that's kind of the rule of thumb. And if there's no moisture at that depth, you're in trouble. So I, I, I just kind of suggest people, well, that's an interesting little rule of thumb. It's a rule of your index finger, I guess. So yeah, what do you do? Yeah, no, what, what are you doing I, right now? Um, I mean, today and then last week, we're, we're combating the drought um, with the deer pressure. You know, we're, we're in the Midwest here. We have, you know, in these summer evenings, some of these young bean fields will have a dozen plus deer in them. So they're, they're getting worked over pretty hard because everything's dry. The beans are nice and green. They're about six inches, out, eight inches out of the ground right now. So uh, last week in Missouri, we fenced off six acres beans two three acre fields on different farms and then this uh today we fenced off a three acre field here in iowa just we're kind of focusing on a where we might have some big deer that were still alive last year to show up so that we're going to have food for them to be able to harvest them and b combating uh the pressure you know just in some spots like today we were in a spot it's a three acre field that's surrounded by solid timber so it's just got a lot of natural deer pressure. Um, but three strand hot wire, you know, it takes a lot of time driving all the posts, weed eating under the hot fence. Um, it's, it's a, it's a two man job for sure. So, uh, that's kind of where we're at. We're, uh, praying for rain. Um, we're supposed to get some on Sunday, hopefully this week, but, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of at a transition area where we're, 
in between our row crop fields going into our fall plots and then uh, just doing a lot of blind maintenance, moving blinds, doing some redesigns on, uh, on green fields, our fall plots, if you will, and uh, changing some things. So, so I want to back up and I want to talk a little about fencing because we don't, we don't really talk about much, much of that on this podcast. Why don't you go through your fencing protocol, even the brand of fencing that you're using, you know, the type of ribbon or the, the manufacturer, yeah. and then just the spacing height, the whole nine. I think people need it. And I, I'm also interested how you weeded and then keep that, you know, weed structure away from, you know, the fencing strand. Yeah. So we, we use a Gallagher brand. Uh, it's called turbo tape. It's for horses. We use the half inch and we found that to work a lot better because that tape, you know, any little wind movement, um, it flutters in the wind, even when it's in, you know, T-Pose configuration. So I think it catches their eye real good and they're, you know, they're a little skeptical about it. And so that's what we found works the best. And we run a three strand type system, meaning there's a single strand on the outside of the fence that hits me at about waist height. Um, and then there's two strands on the inside of the fence. One hits me just above the waist and then one hits me just about probably a little above the knee. Um, and those, those spacings from outside strand to inside strands, roughly three, three and a half foot. So what happens is that deer walks up to the outside strand and if it doesn't get hit, it's got, and it's kind of an optical illusion for them. I believe, you know, they've got that three and a half foot spacing and kind of a tall wire that they got to decide whether they can jump or not, or they jump into the center and they get hit by the strand and then jump out. Um, we partner that with a S20 solar Gallagher solar panel. It runs up to about a mile, mile and a half of fence, and uh, it hits pretty hard. So um, we just kind of daisy chain those three strands together off of one, uh, one solar box and then a ground rod pounded in the ground six foot ran to a, to a ground wire. So it's a pretty simple setup to do. Uh, it just takes some time and some, uh, you know, sweat to get it, to get it all in and, and unroll it and walk around it three times to unroll all those strands of wire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. I, I've been there. I, I know what you're doing. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's the beauty of this. And and like you said, it, it's hopefully keeping them off the beans. And I, I know you're thinking some of these areas for late, late season, you did say you were making some changes though. And, and you were moving box blinds around or you're rethinking some of the farm, maybe layout. And uh, I want to kind of go there next. So your box blinds, and I know we talked about this previously, you know, some of them may be on sleds, some of them are on wheels, um, some of them are just, you know, on, on posts. What 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 is working the best for you, like mobility-wise? What do you like doing? What do you recommend to people that are getting into the box blind world? What works best? I mean, I'll tell you the best thing on the market. They're not cheap, but... Uh... Keen Outdoors makes a trailer. Uh, you can tow this thing 80 mile an hour down the highway with a blind sitting on it. And it has four jack posts that swing down and level out your blind. And then there's a 2,000 pound winch that you just hook to your truck battery, ATV battery, whatever you got. 
to winch it 10 foot in the air and a, and a ladder kicks out and uh, you put two wing nuts on two safety bolts and you have a blind that is 100% mobile, can go anywhere you can drive a truck or a side-by-side for that matter, and it erects 10 foot and it self-levels itself. I mean, for on the market today, those trailers are the best and four bolt configuration to just about any blind on the market. So, I mean, they're worth their weight in gold. They're worth their weight in gold for all of our leases we have or permission farms or, you know, any type of farm that we have in that sense, we use mobile blinds because, you know, year to year, we might not lease it. We might lose the lease. We might not have permission anymore. You know how that stuff works. So we use mobiles for there and then on any farm that mark owns or we have permanently you know we we set up either muddies or hawks on 10 foot metal permanent stands and some of those as you mentioned are on skids we take uh six by sixes that are 14 footers i believe and uh we kind of cut the ends off at a sled type uh shape so that they slide through terrain and then we just lag bolt them to, uh, to the metal frame. So some of our blinds are mobile within a farm. And then we have, obviously those keen trailers are mobile to the extent of you can go to the next state if you want. Do you have on, and I'm a little familiar with the keen trailers. Do you have a, another option or home built kind of trailer systems for any of the other options? Or are you pretty much stuck on those right now? Um, as far as like trailering mobile stuff, mm-hmm. I would say the best next thing is buy an old farm running gear and attach your blind to that. The only thing I don't like about those is they're very hard to back up because the running gear has the front wheels that turn with yeah. it. Yep. So you, you just about can't back it up. But as far as like cost save, buy a cheap running gear at a farm auction, build your blind on top of it. You can go a lot of places, but it's hard to beat those Keens. I mean, they're, uh, they're not cheap and they're, and I get why they're built really well, but man, we've, we've killed a lot of deer being mobile with a blind set up on those things. So, so let me ask you another piece of this. So the Keens with the elevation and then the scaffolding kind of set up, and I know they're, you know, they raise up and they get the ladder system. What do you do for concealment in those scenarios where you're just popping them up? What you stuffing burlap around them, camo tape? What are you doing to kind of conceal those blinds, or, or just leave them as as is, and you have your system to bust the deer off the field, et cetera? How are you how are you handling that? They don't. The deer here, I mean, they grew up in a world of box blinds in the Midwest. It, it's I'm not going to say it's overrun with them, but there's enough box blinds scattered throughout the landscape that the deer grow up with them, and they really do not seem to shy from them. As long as you're not pushing the envelope. You know, if you're hunting a fence gap that's 30, 40 yards wide and you're sitting right on top of it, yeah, they might shy from it. But, you know, if you're smart in where you place these blinds, and A, hunt the correct wind is probably the biggest thing because if they bust you out of one of them, they're going to be a little leery out of it. Yeah. But if if you're hunting smart and, you know, you're not pushing the envelope to a fence gap or a natural waterway or something in that nature, you know, we, we don't have any trouble with them uh, being weary of them at all. So Yeah, great, great, great point. And, uh, you know, a lot of times I think it is it is area contingent. I've worked out in the Midwest, so I, I'm familiar with – 
the blinds all over the place. A lot of permanent, you know, permanent blinds, so to speak. But there's a there's a lot more of them in those areas as compared to the east, where you know where I'm doing a lot of my work. So I think that's it's an interesting observation. All right, let's go to some other things that you might be working on, and uh, I think so far pretty interesting when we're talking about you know farm setup and layout. You said you're changing some things. I kind of want to get into maybe some examples of what you might be doing in the next, I don't know, month or so uh, with with setup, layout, et cetera, and uh, new ideas, et cetera, that you're kind of working through. Yeah, so every year um, at the end of deer season, uh, mid-January, myself, Mark, and Wade sit down and we analyze every farm and every plot and how it did. Um, whether the blind needs to be moved across the field and hung on a different wind, you know, whether we need to change an access point. So every year we have, I would say every year we have on average probably five changes to make, um, throughout all the farms. Um, most, most farms we have are pretty dialed in, but those guys have had them for years and, you know, know the deer patterns. But so, you know, once we figure out the change we want to make, and sometimes it's a subtle change and then we see how it works and maybe we make a more, a bigger change later on down, you know, maybe next year, two years from now. So, I mean, honestly, we're going to next week, Wade and I are going to go to Missouri. We have a plot that we've hunted for years or they've hunted for years. I've hunted for a few years now and uh, we've always hunted on a predominantly northwesterly wind and it's the deer seem to be moving a little different lately the past year or two. And, uh, so our blinds kind of in the wrong spot, you know, whether they're bedding in a different spot because we did some TSI on that farm that had not previously been there. You know, I don't know what changed the dynamic, maybe the row crop that their destination food source has been moved a little bit to a different field, a farmer, uh, to our, to our north and east. So I don't know what has changed their movement, but they have changed it a little bit on this plot. So we're simply going to move the blind straight across the field and hunt it on a straight west wind only. Um, and, and that's, you know, that move, I think if the deer do what they've been doing the last year or two is going to be all we need, you know, and, I think a lot of people dive sometimes too deep into what they need to do when a very subtle change like that, you know, whether it's a tree stand movement on a small food plot and hunting a different wind could, could make all the difference. And that's just an example of that farm in that particular spot. That's I think going to pay big come this November. Yeah. I like, I like the fact that you're dialing in and recognizing that things change consistently, or they may be a consistent change and you're reacting to it. I'm going to bring up an example. So, you know, the other day uh, my partner came over and we were making some decisions on my property next year. We're doing a, a habitat day. And and so we're going to have a select amount of people out and we're kind of going to go through the process. It's hard for sometimes people to afford having me come out to their property and that's understandable. So we're going to, we're going to do some offerings. So I'm doing my layout a little bit differently this year. I've been fine tuning a bunch of things, you know, as, as time goes on, what you do is you, you kind of observe and you, and you learn, I'm constantly learning. And he turned to me and he said, I can't believe you have not, you've been sitting on this one change We've talked about it for two years and you haven't done anything about it. 
you know, it was enough, like you're talking about kind of this team mentality. It was enough where I, I was able to have that discussion and I'm like, you're right. And he's like, the little you're going to lose in timber, you're going to gain so much in movement and huntability. And why would you even think about delaying that change? And I, I just, you know, Perry, the point being is like, you guys have your heads together. And I, I would suggest anybody who has partnerships or friends that they hunt with, you know, sit there and kind of diagnose what's going on and, and, and give yourself like a, an opportunity to kind of digest the changes and opportunities that you have in front of it. You may not know necessarily what the easiest thing to do or the best thing. That's why you hire a consultant or you bring other people in, other friends in, you know, people were, you know, they, they may have a different perspective on things. And that's probably what you get out of those, you know, meetups that you have and, and strategy sessions that you have as a team. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's, multiple times whether you know it's a strategy or a blind move or even during the season when we sit down and say okay this deer's been daylighting or this deer's in this area what wind are we going to hunt him on and where are we going to kill him you know meaning which food plot or which spot we're going to hunt and there's just the three of us and sometimes there's other people around that that know our farms or have hunted with us in the past and you know, just those, you know, call it three to five people speaking. There's multiple different ideas that come about. And normally it's a mix of all those ideas that end up being the, the end plan to go kill the deer. So it's, uh, it's definitely a good point. You know, if you're a one man show on one farm or multiple farms, uh, get a friend because they're going to help you. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And, and I'll give you one other little example I did, uh, I had a, a client out to my property and he, he wanted to walk it and, and we, I've done a bunch of work with him and, um, you know, we, we drove around the property and I was showing him the layout, the changes, you know, I, I don't know if he, he seemed a little blown away by all, all the work that had been done. And, you know, my, my property kind of operates almost like a machine. Well, I'm stuck on a bunch of things, right? I've got, th- you, you almost get like blinded right your your analysis paralysis kind of scenario and he had so many good ideas and i just sat there and was like man if you could just if you could just kind of group up with with some of the you know the known minds that just have a have a clue right they, they have a strategy and it just it just could change and he had some ideas some business opportunity ideas things that he kind of portrayed to me as it relates to just managing landscape, not even my business. And it was just kind of smart ideology. I, I'm, I'm thinking further about now that, you know, I'm just using resources different that I have in front of me that, that maybe I didn't think so in depthly about. So, you know, when you have a water resource, soil resources, timber resources, you know, whatever the resources you have, you know, don't, don't degrade those, look at them, and look at the benefit that they provide and, and think about how you can amplify them. Um, and, and that's really, really important, I think, for, for a lot of us. All right. So I want I want to know what you personally been doing this year in, in respect to, you know, your next step. So, you know, you're out in the field, you're working. Um, what are things you're going to be doing over the next month or so, you know, professionally, et cetera, that they've got you doing that the people should think about right now? Because I think people are saying, okay, it's midsummer. Yeah, I want to sit back, you know, drink a pina colada. Um, what are you doing in the field? Because I'm working. Yeah, for sure. Um, we uh, we obviously keep up on all our mowing throughout all the farms. And I think the biggest thing, you know, people that plant food plots themselves kind of wait till the last minute to either go mow that food plot off or spray it. And we keep those food plots mowed. And we got a 
we got a couple, we got two new farms that we, we got this year. And so next week we're going to go take the skid steer, take the, take the mulcher in there and mow out the new plot now instead of right before when we plant so that we have the uh, opportunity to not only mow off some trees and some brush that's in it and design it currently. So, you know, we might get up there and design it with the skid steer and place the blind and go, "Ah, I think we need to do it a little bit different. And so we've got some time for that grass and everything to regrow and then redesign our shape. And I think a lot of people overlook, like, like you said, sit on the beach, drink a pina colada. Well, you know, if you really, really want to be successful and have a good food plot, I think those prepping and the upfront work, if you will, happens now, you know, so that now you're ready to either, you know, till it up, seed it, fertilize it. You know, when that time comes and you get a rain window, you can go instead of, oh, well, I got to mow it. I got to, you know, clear some brush and then you're a week behind. So that's the biggest thing for us because we plant so many food plots. I mean, we're 30, 30 different food plots when it comes to the fall. We have to be prepped and ready to go when that rain window is uh, knocking on our door because we just don't have enough time to get them all in if we're not. Will you personally work uh, dawn to dark and then even, even greater in those situations? Will you just keep rolling? Yes. Wade and I, if we got a rain window and we got to get all the fields in, we'll work till, till the cows come home. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I understand. And I've been in the same boat. So I think uh, a lot of people that can relate to that and think about the scale of, you know, the farms that you're working on. So, you know, size of equipment, logistics, all the things we've talked about previously kind of play, play, play in all that. And, and I, I just, I think that's where, you know, a lot of people that have farms in multiple States, and they're managing them on their own, it becomes pretty pretty daunting. And, and it goes back to, you know, some of the equipment options, the convenience of having something on a trailer that's portable or something on skids that you can kind of slate around the property. I think it's thinking agile. And I think in anything, you know, we, we recognize this. Um, I had a food plot failure this year already, and that doesn't normally happen to me. And, in fact, I, I think in my career of planting food plots, this is the first year that I've I've had some issues. So I'm thinking through some of my my strategy on when and why and how to keep the soil moist. Um, I did tillage this year because I did another reset and I don't normally do that. So, you know, I, I I'm not sure, you know, we've got it all figured out all the time and I'm so susceptible to making mistakes and I make them so much and at least I'm learning you know, through this process and doing, I, hopefully I, I'm learning and, and doing better and, and have a better strategy kind of going into the, the season. And um, the other thing I want to ask you at this point in time, are you guys still analyzing trail camera photos? And, you know, I'm not, not necessarily talking about the, the deer uh, from the, from the, the current state, but previous, you know, do you still, you're still going through camera data or are you past that point and you're collecting new data and starting to look at the new information? Current day, we do not mess with camera data or cameras themselves. I will say when the season starts to pick up, let's call it, for us, we really pick up cameras at the end of August, mid-August to end of August. We will 
Um, we have Mark has all deer pictures from every camera, every location saved from decades ago. Um, and so if there's one deer in particular that we're hunting, which is normally the case, um, we will look at history of where that deer was when he daylighted, what he was doing, you know, call it two, three years back and then try to compare it to present day when we're trying to hunt him and trying to figure out where he's going to be and when he's going to daylight. So to answer that question is yes, current day, no, but all that data is about to be used here in the next two months. Okay. So I want to talk a bigger picture and I kind of want to end with this. And this is something that I talked to a client recently and uh, we talked about uh, the, I look at ratios of open ground to forested ground and uh, or shrubland areas to open ground, et cetera. And I look at those percentages and I look at, you know, cycles of movement. And um, one of the things I wonder in your area, because you, you have heavy ag in some areas and maybe more timber in other areas, but in the areas where you have, you know, the predominance is agriculture. Do you find at least come, you know, August, September, do you notice a lot of your deer that maybe have stuck around percentage wise? And I'm talking bucks specifically, maybe even more specifically mature bucks. Are they coming into your farm? Are they leaving your farm? Is it just all over the place? Um, how, how's your retention rate? I mean, have you kind of started to diagnose that? And, and maybe you can think of a particular farm because I know every area is different based on crop rotation, you know, the happenstance of what's happening in the woodlots, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I'm trying to think right now on a percentage I would give you. Um, we definitely lose because we feed analogics here in Iowa because it is legal to supplemental feed while it's not hunting season. So to get camera surveys and figure out what bucks are around, we feed analogics. It helps them, especially with some of the additives they've been putting into that mix to help with EHD, um, which is a huge help. Um, so, we get a lot of deer that come to that feed and come to our cameras because we're feeding analogics. And I would say, man, I don't know. I would say we lose probably 30 to 40% of our mature bucks. You know, say we have eight to 10 bucks on a analogics camera survey in August I would say when it gets down to hunting season, we probably lose three to four of those and we keep five to six somewhere in there. Yeah. And, and I know, you know, those are just generalities, but I think one of the things we can start thinking about in the statistics that we can start to kind of parlay into kind of understanding what your habitat does for the deer and your example, the analogic as a basis or a supporting kind of tool is looking at those numbers, looking at what the retention is th- throughout, you know, that, that summer period into that early fall period, you know, into that late season and looking at, you know, how your habitat changes and shifts the dynamics around you, you know, and, and even looking at not only fawn retention, but fawn survival, and I think it's looking at the entire herd in that capacity. In these areas where we have low deer populations, this is very, very critical. Higher deer population areas, it is as critical. 
it, it helps decipher what to shoot, what not to shoot at all. So obviously in this case, we're talking about big bucks, you know, what's going to stick around the season. But I think, you know, that's important to think about your ecosystem, how you're managing, you know, your food allotment for the deer, um, how you're managing your timber, shrubland areas, et cetera. And I just want to kind of point that out because I think it's something that we don't talk about. We haven't talked about it on this podcast. And I know some of this is anecdotal, but I think it's important to consider kind of the influx of deer on your properties. I think people don't, don't pay as much attention to that, particularly when deer go hard horn and throughout the summer months. And uh, on my property, you know, I'm, I'm finding because of the lack of food right now, and I mean lack of food plots, I am finding a heavier buck population, doe population on my property on a consistent daily basis. And I'm watching these deer on a daily basis. And um, th- that is a consideration for me. It's not something that I prefer because I'm hoping to increase the deer numbers or maintain or recruit more of these fawns into the next age class and to, you know, to get them the next year, you know, and, and I'm, I'm focused on, you know, a bunch of different attributes on my property. So I just want to bring that up as a consideration for anybody who's thinking about their deer herd. Cause I think it's another thing you can do while sitting back and relaxing on the beach. If you don't want to do the hard work, like me and Perry are, you may be able to just kind of look at the data and, and start to decipher, Oh, this is what's going on. So, yeah, a hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. And especially, you know, you're on the complete flip of what we are here. You know, we're trying to lower overall deer numbers, not just, you know, some mature bucks, but also does in particular, just because we have too many deer, but I would encourage everyone anywhere, every state, I don't care where you hunt. When you go through the season, Every day you hunt, whether it's a morning or an evening or an all-day sit, write down your stand location, blind location, wherever you were. Write down what you saw, bucks, does, fawns, or bucks, does, yearlings, and keep a log every day for an entire season. And then we, we do that currently, and that's how we base our doe harvest numbers every year. We sit down and look at our ratios, you know, how many does, how many bucks, how many yearlings do we have? So, I mean, I would encourage anyone, no matter where you hunt, to do something similar to that, to just figure out, like you said, how many yearlings are you keeping every year? How many does do you currently have? How many mature bucks or just bucks in general? You can even break it down even farther. So it's a, it's a very helpful tool. Yeah, and there's there's one next step to this is looking at the interaction amongst the deer and then looking how deer congregate and, you know, what deer stay together, what deer depart, you know, what mature bucks end up supporting maybe um, the interest of younger bucks and looking at those relationships. There's a relationship dynamic, and I, I pay attention to this because I have a, you know, a small property, right? I'm looking at, you know, basically how social they are or how social they're not. And that is another indicator on how I will hunt that deer. And I think it's important to kind of start to, you know, think more about the herd dynamics when it comes to a social aspect. And we're, we're a little bit humanizing this, but in some capacity, I have found over the years, some of the mature bucks on my property, they, they like to be loners. They also in some capacity have a year and a half or two and a half year old shadowing them or, you know, they're, they're friends, so to speak, you know, in some yeah, capacity. No, and and I, I agree. There's a, you know, especially early season here for us, you know, we'll have deer 
on camera every evening that will have, you know, it might be a two and a half and a three and a half that come out into the field. And then 20 minutes later, here comes the six and a half year old. And then we'll go hunt that spot and you see, oh, there's the, the two and a half year old. Oh, here's the three and a half. Well, not long after, here comes the big boy. So they definitely, at some point in time, I think give that up, you know, maybe not in your area, but I definitely agree with that earlier in the season, um, being social like that. Yeah. And I think that's an important characteristic to consider in it. It, it, it could give you an indicator of how to hunt those deer. And it, it also gives you an idea of, you know, I, th- I think the dynamic piece of it, a lot of times these singular bucks, what I've found is if they are single, they'll actually shadow does throughout the season. And even now um, I found one of the deer I hunted a few years ago, you know, he, he wasn't in a bachelor group. And then this goes to show you the dynamic of not having a lot of mature bucks, you know, and, and in my area, you know, a deer getting a three and a half year old, and that's why I don't have these 200 inch deer in the wall or 150 inch deer in the wall. You know, most deer are not making it to three in my area. So, you know, if we get a deer to three or four or five, sometimes they are solo. And um, I find them trying to tail and surround themselves actually with, with those more frequently than you think. And also depends on, in, in some capacity, the dynamics in that doe herd, um, age class, et cetera, if that buck will shadow those does or, or actually support that doe group, it, almost like a family unit, so to speak. It, not not actually that way, but in some capacity, they they, they keep their spacing correct. And, and I found that actually can help you think through your layout on your property as well, um, how tight you can have some of your deer. And you'll you get to see that when you, when you, uh, when you pay attention to the camera data, just, just small tidbits to kind of pick up on when you're starting to look at your camera data. And I, I'm pretty sure one of the other guys, Perry, Jake Ellinger's picked up on the same thing. I just kind of introduced, I think he may have a different flavor of it a little bit, but uh, he's going to probably come up with some stuff in a couple podcasts that we have about kind of the deer dynamics and herd dynamics, et cetera. So uh, just Heck wanna, yeah. yeah, cool stuff. What, uh, what do you think, your number one issue is in your neighborhood neck of the woods if you will while your mature deer don't get over three and a half culture it's culture um the the problem here and and there's people i mean you obviously assume that a lot of people know who i am right and in my local area people know who i am they know where my property is they they know everything it's it's patience and the culture we not having the quality and I'm going to be careful because this is central New York. This is where they don't understand the value. And I think some people do, but it's an interesting thing as well. Like if you're not deeply interested in having quality, then age class doesn't matter to you. And I think that that's a plaguing kind of dynamic in our culture, at least in New York state. And that's why it's hard like for consultants to come from the West out to East because one, they haven't hunted this dynamic. And two, they don't necessarily understand you know, the happenstance of the, the cultural norms. I mean, I'm, I'm working on areas. I can tell you, you know, deer numbers are through the roof in parts of Western New York. The buck to doe ratios, you know, at, at the fringes of like one to nine, you know, and, and everybody's like, don't shoot, don't shoot any doe still. And, and just, there's just a, just a, just a misunderstanding and educational thing as well. So I would say there's a combination of a lot and that kind of plagues a lot of the Northeast. You also, you know, the winter severity index, you know, our, you know, our recruitment rate is, is much lower 
you know, we were probably at least, well, I had a, I had a dynamite year last year on my property, but recruitments are like 0.3 and it's just like super low recruitments where you guys could be around one, 1 1.2. But I think a lot of it depends on the drought, you know, the food sources, you know, and and then of course you've got the issue going kind of around the, around the horn is, you know, you don't have some of the climatic issues that we're experiencing, you know, your deer make it into the season. And I'm not saying they don't run themselves ragged, but you know, they're, they're definitely, our deer seem to be pretty malnourished, you know, come April. So, you know, we're, we're kind of struggling going into those early where they're mineral balancing their bodies. They're starting to produce antlers. You know, we're, we're struggling into that, that phase of the year. And a lot of people aren't thinking about herd health and supplemental mm-hmm. feeding. And I don't mean supplemental in the food plot aspect of it. So it's just kind of a different dynamic, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I always knew that the, the Northeast was a, a different uh, mindset, if you will, throughout the hunting community. I feel like, you know, everybody just wants to go shoot a deer. They don't really care yeah. uh, how old it is, if you will. Yeah. And and I don't think there's nothing wrong with that. Um, there's, there's no, really, no, there's nothing wrong with it. It's all about what you want. Yeah. It, it just, it's much different. And me working out in the Midwest, I just, I, I just, it's a different mindset. And, um, you know, it makes, so if you just kill a buck in the four or five year old class, and, you know, that people look at my wall and they're like, you know, they're, they're not seeing, you know, I've, I've got a, I've got a couple one forties and a one fifty. I mean, that, that's, that's like Boone and Crockett, you know, comparable in my area because those, those deer just don't exist. That's the 1% of 1%. And I'm not special, you know, I'm just doing a lot of little things correct. But, you know, when you create a property that nobody else is doing that and you're able to pull all those big bucks in, there must be something special going on. And I, I feel like on the properties that I've been working on over the years, we're, we're able to do that. And, you know, I had a client kill a booner last year and, and he didn't tell anybody about it. Um, he, he didn't show me a picture the only way I I'm, if he invites me back, that's the only way I'll see that deer. He didn't bring it to any taxidermy shop, nothing. And, and he's a, he's a smart man. He is. He's smart. And uh, I was just ha- fortunate. He called me and he told me that, you know, some of the things we had, gone over made sense and they worked out and he's a very private person and and uh, i give him credit for that so you know it's yep. it's uh it's something to consider i don't mean to rant, rant and go on but yeah there's just it's just a different area but I, i'd love to have like you come experience this and, and not like oh this is you know but it's just definitely a different environment and you know i think i think you would enjoy the terrain i think you would enjoy the different style of hunting for sure it's a different tradition yeah how many turkeys you got in that neighborhood? I might come. Well, I can tell you right now, um, <laughs> the turkey numbers are just increasing in a couple areas. And I've, I've got some clients that I've been on recently. And, you know, I, I don't normally do this, but I'm starting to, you know, want to reach out a little bit more turkey season. So if, if you guys want to come to New York turkey hunting, that, that'd be something we could do. Heck yeah, man. That's, I love deer. And that's my job, and that's what makes me money. But turkey hunting is my passion. So <laughs> yeah, the the, the jury's head in New York, right? For Perry Batten head in New York, I would. It'd be, yeah, that'd be great yeah. to have you guys out here. That'd be that'd, be, that'd awesome. be a crazy, uh, be a crazy state. We went out to Montana this year. It was the first time for me, like going west and hunting, which is man, it was amazing. Yeah, so. I saw your video, and you were successful right off the bat. Yeah, yeah, we killed one the first day. So good, and you got to relax. What did you bring your wife with you? Uh, no, she didn't come. She was a little mad about that, but, uh, <laughs> we went, we went for a work trip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounded like a good work trip. 
Well, good. Yeah. All right. Well, we're getting to the end of this. Anything else you want to kind of add on, lay on us? Nope. Get out there. Get after those food plots. Get your farm set up and hopefully kill a big deer this year. All right. We're going to check in with you right before season and see where you're at and, uh, you know, what's uh, what your next steps are and, and what hunting season looks like for you guys this year. Sounds good. All right, Perry. Talk soon, man. See ya. Later. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.